This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. So what is the whole immigration thing in European politics about anyway? And why is so much of European political turmoil at the moment? We're tackling those questions today here on Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, coming to you from the banks of the River Thames in London while I fill in for Mary Kissel, who is on leave at a secure, undisclosed location. And I'm excited to be joined today in our luxury podcasting studio by Sophia Gaston, a journal op-ed contributor extraordinaire and one of the most perceptive people I know when it comes to parsing European public opinion. Hello, Sophia. Hello. Um, Now, I just want to give listeners a quick word about your background. You've got extensive experience running polling and focus groups around Europe, and you are just now setting up the Center for Social and Political Risk at the Henry Jackson Society, which is a think tank here in London. And on top of all of that, you recently wrote an op-ed for us. Listeners can find it on our website, entitled, Europe's Leaders Need a New Way of Talking About Immigration. And we ran that before Sunday's election in Sweden, in which yet another anti-immigrant party has performed pretty well. So I thought it might be great to have you in today to talk a little bit about some of these big picture questions. And I mean, looking at the election result in Sweden, looking at uh, recent elections we've had in Germany and the Netherlands, um, even to a certain extent in France or in Britain, Clearly, voters are trying to tell politicians something about the immigration issue, about migration after the 2015 crisis. Clearly, uh, politicians are not getting that message. What is the message that the politicians aren't getting right now? Well, I think immigration has really become the defining issue in Europe. And uh, one could say it's certainly a a prominent issue in America, but I think it is really existential in, in Europe at the moment. And it's not necessarily the question of immigration or border control itself. It's all the other questions that it has brought to the fore. It is an issue that really cuts to the heart of our relationship with our politicians, and also our relationship with our nation. How do we see ourselves? It's a point of identity. It's a point of culture. It's a point of values. And I think the conversations that we're having right now have really come after an extended period of sort of 20 years in particular of a sort of doctrine of of uh, liberalism that has seen our societies become incredibly more diverse, more connected, more open. Obviously, this has coincided with the time of, of a period of globalization as well on an economic level. But I think we're coming to the end of this time now. We're moving into a new phase. And I think what politicians have really missed is that this great coming together has somehow heralded now a great coming apart. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I found so striking about the op-ed that you wrote for us last week is the fact that, you know, when people talk about immigration, I mean, when commentators talk about immigration, when politicians talk about it, and especially when voters talk about it, it's not always clear how much they're really talking about immigration versus how much it is becoming a proxy for other issues. So, I mean, one of some of the points that you make in your piece for us uh, last week, um, you know, Politicians really need to talk about jobs and how immigration will relate to the labor market. Uh, you know, the, the, 
So in that sense, the issue is tying into these broader uh, concerns that people have about the economy overall. Uh, they need to be able to, politicians need to talk about how immigration will relate to the welfare system. How can, um, you know, Europe's very highly developed, uh, expansive social welfare system accommodate all of these new entrants? How can people deal with some of the cultural fallout of that 20 years of, uh, you know, extreme liberalism on a lot of these issues? And still have a sense of national identity. And, uh, you know, again, because of all of those factors or what this is really about, it often feels like the politicians and the voters are talking past each other on, on a lot of this. I think that politicians have fundamentally underestimated how immigration has become a political issue and also a social and cultural issue. If we if we're talking about the uh, the point around jobs here, there is a lot of competition at the lower end of the jobs market here. And we're not talking about knowledge-intensive jobs in, in cities with young professionals, urban elites. We're talking about sort of the salt-of-the-earth people, many of whom were already exposed to the processes of deindustrialization. And I think for many of these people, they see themselves as collateral damage in a kind of broader effort, uh, a broader movement um, from governments to shift our societies to become more globally connected and open to the world. And I think if we're talking about welfare reform as well um, and and the welfare state, if we look at the Swedish elections, um, one of the reasons why immigration has become such a palpable, divisive and, uh, you know, really a, 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 a lightning rod issue in this country is because there is a very clear social contract that Swedes have with their government around their welfare state. And anything that is perceived to threaten that, and, and we we must point out that aside from the migration crisis, um, you know, Sweden's welfare system has has been under a bit of strain. There is a widespread, a growing consensus that, um, you know, things aren't working as well as they should be in, in, in terms of healthcare, uh, schools, they used to top the world, they're now falling down in the league tables. Swedes pay an enormous uh, financial uh, price for, for their high functioning welfare state. And they also on an emotional level, uh, believe in the welfare state and 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 believe in in their liberal identity. So, when you have the migration crisis, people becoming more conscious of of uh, a sort of quid pro quo and a, a competition around access to resources and so on. Um, many of those sort of more existential points of their social contract, the the cultural identity around liberal liberalism start to become threatened. And that's where there is a really acute level of, of fear, um, which can be effectively activated and can have, of course, quite serious political consequences. Now, I want to come back to some of these cultural issues in just a minute. But first, I, I do want to, to bore down a little bit on the jobs and some of the economy issues, because one of the things, that, again, that really caught my eye about the op-ed that you've written for us is this fact that it is actually possible to have a sophisticated conversation with voters about the economics of migration. And again, I think that you referred to some of these very real issues that happen in terms of low-skilled immigration and the perception of the economic consequences of that. But you also, um, I, I think, you know, talk about finding that actually voters have a more nuanced view of different kinds of immigration and that you know, voters do understand that there can be 
economic benefits uh, to it, but they do want to feel that there's a sense of control, uh, you know, making sure that politicians are harnessing immigration to have economic benefits. Absolutely. And I mean, when I'm conducting focus groups, uh, citizens will make very clear distinctions between different groups of migrants and the contribution they make. Um, they will often start conversations by saying, you know, we recognize the economic benefits that are brought here. Um, there's obviously some dispute now amongst commentators as, uh, you know, this is one of the most uh, difficult areas um, of of, uh, of evidence-based policymaking we have, actually. Um, I think what we're seeing, though, now as well is that some of these economic benefits are seen to be perhaps not as persuasive against some of the perceived social and cultural costs. So really, uh, citizens are making evaluations of trade-offs. And I think what is very interesting about this point of trade-offs is that politicians have been very ill-equipped to wade into the arena of the social and cultural domain. And certainly in the wake of the migration crisis and and you know, the sort of acceleration of, of public concern around immigration over the past three years and, and of course all these political shocks we've been having, I think certainly some in the academic community and, and certainly the politicians were very quick to grasp at the idea that there was an economic, underlying economic issue to what, behind all of this. That uh, what we were seeing now was the long tail of deindustrialization or the sort of ongoing impacts of, of, of the changes in the labor market after the global financial crisis. And I think there's absolutely some truth to that, as I say, particularly for people at the lower end of the jobs market. Um, and and what we have also seen is the expansion of a sense of economic precariousness from the working classes into the middle classes as well. So that's absolutely true. But it's a multi-layered thing. The, we cannot separate the cultural and the social from the economic story. But I think politicians have been um, very weak on engaging with those issues. And that's because if it is an economic issue... They have the tools in their arsenal. They know how to deal with this. They know how to deal with inequality and poverty and so on. Whether or not they're effective at it is another matter. But they feel they know the tools. If you're talking about a cultural crisis or a social cohesion or an issue of integration and segregation, that is much more difficult for them to deal with. Well, and I just want to talk a bit about what, how politicians can deal with that, because I think that a big part of the problem in the way that this issue is getting talked about right now is that oftentimes, um, you know, particularly urban elites and you know, folks on you know, various ends of the political spectrum are too quick, I think, to talk about some of these cultural concerns that voters have simply in terms of xenophobia or racism, and uh, to suggest that the only concern that a voter in a rural area or even in some suburbs might have is that the migrants somehow look different from that uh, native-born voter. And I, I'm, you know, in my own reporting on, on this, my sense has been that that is doing a real disservice to voters who are not necessarily racist but do care about some of these cultural issues. And so what does that kind of cultural engagement look like um, if you're a politician who is recognizing that there is something real here, but that, that something that the voters are feeling is not actually racism. I think the thing to remember is that we are not talking about fringe positions here when we're talking about anxieties about immigration. We are talking about 
mainstream positions now. I actually conducted a survey earlier this year in Britain um, where I asked whether or not uh, respondents agreed that the government had done enough to promote and uphold British values and traditions in the face of change. And really, that was overwhelmingly rejected. And that is now a majority position in Britain. Majority of people do not believe this. So I think we have to remember that first and foremost. And I think, again, there still has been a tendency to see this as sort of a a sort of... um, an issue that needs to be addressed in particular segments, um, whereas this is very much a mainstream issue. I think in terms of the responses, what we're really dancing around here is the question of citizenship. And the challenge is that citizenship is inherently, in some ways, exclusionary. You are creating boundaries. It's about an inside and an outside. It's about deservingness, it's about acceptability, and so on. And citizenship is a fundamental underpinning of the idea of the modern nation state. And I think we've really lost our way on this concept. And again, it's become very difficult for politicians to find a way to talk about it. The challenge, the fundamental challenge is, how can we have a conversation about citizenship that is inclusive, um, in some ways, but also chimes with the expectations that ordinary people hold about uh, values, traditions, behavior, language, and so on. I mean, almost the entire British population agrees that, for example, um, speaking English should be a part of um, our expectations of citizenship. There are still clear majority positions on quite a few other elements there, but you start to go into grey territory. So I think really the question now is, can politicians lead on this? Can they define a concept of citizenship that is going to be fit for purpose in an age where our societies are considerably more diverse than they were? Well, we are talking about European leaders and voters talking past each other on the issue of immigration, and this is Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. Drive time, gym time, anytime. Podcasts from the Wall Street Journal. Check out all our shows at WSJ.com slash podcasts. That's WSJ.com slash podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal... This is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition. I'm Joseph Sternberg, in for Mary Kissel. I've been having a fascinating conversation with public opinion researcher Sophia Gaston about her work trying to understand what European voters want. 
Now, in our last segment, we were touching a little bit on this issue of identity in European politics. And so I wanted to turn for our second half uh, to some bigger picture work that you've done uh, in the past couple of years, which I just think is absolutely fascinating and um, it touches on an issue that I've been detecting in a lot of uh, political discussion around Europe recently. And that is this issue of nostalgia, which might surprise listeners because I think that people wouldn't necessarily think of an emotion like nostalgia necessarily being such a uh, driver in European politics when we have so many of these other issues going on. But uh, you know, one of the things that I find interesting from your work, and you wrote a report on this uh, earlier this year entitled At Home in One's Past, looking at some of your research in several European countries on this, is the extent to which voters' perception of what life was like in the past, uh, even if that perception isn't completely accurate or complete, uh, really does seem to be shaping uh, voters' reactions to a lot of issues like migration or economic change. And so I'm I'm just interested to, to flush that idea out a little bit more, the sense that nostalgia is becoming this uh, political force maybe just under the surface that uh, you know listeners in other parts of the world might not be picking up on, but that is having a big impact on how uh, politicians communicate with voters and how voters think about the decisions they're making. The reason that I wanted to look into nostalgia right at this moment is because I think we're standing on a cusp, really, here, where we have these... The, the legacy of these long processes of deindustrialization really coming to bear. And at the same time, we're really on, on the crest of a, a, crest of a wave into, into an entirely new phase with another huge change looming ahead of us in the fourth industrial revolution and, and all, of, all of automation and all of these other different issues that we know are coming. And my concern is that Nostalgia has become utterly endemic to our political cultures. And if we are looking to the past for our ideas and our inspiration, we are sucking a lot of oxygen away from thinking about not only how do we deal with the very unique challenges we are facing at the moment, but also getting on the front foot of future fitting our governments and our societies um, for what's coming next. Now, I think... One theme that has come out of my research into nostalgia, and I think this is something that politicians really haven't been reflecting on, is that one man's progress is another man's decline. And there has been this sort of um, collective vision of where our societies have been going over the past 20, 30 years, particularly the last 20 years, that has uh, pulled us into a sense of perpetual momentum forward. And I think for a lot of citizens, that's been incredibly discombobulating. I've conducted large numbers of, of focus groups and surveys for this project. And um, while the percentage of those who really want to genuinely go back and live in the 1950s, say, um, is actually quite small. They are, they are a very vocal minority. There is a much larger segment of the population for whom this change has been somewhat unnerving and they would like to press the stop button. They would like to get off the proverbial ride. And I think we need to remember that even if people aren't saying, yes, let's recreate the 1950s in our societies today exactly as it was, this unwillingness 
to have an appetite for further change is still as problematic for our capacity to govern because govern in the mo- governing in the modern age is essentially a process of managing change. Uh, right. And I think just to put some numbers on this uh, for listeners who are you know, wondering if there's some danger of overplaying the nostalgia issue, I mean, you've got some really interesting results in this report uh, from, from earlier this year. I mean, 63% of British citizens believe that life was better when they were growing up, you know, compared to only 21% who believe that life is better now. Um, you know, 55% of Brits believe that the job opportunities were more accessible and plentiful in the past. Uh, 71% of the respondents you heard from believe that their communities have been eroded over the course of their lifetime. 63% believe that Britain's status on the world stage has declined. And, you know, what, you know, what was fascinating is the way that that plays into then big political controversies like the Brexit referendum that uh, we went through a couple of years ago. I mean, you also went through and looked at, uh, you know, political speeches surrounding that media coverage and discovered that actually that nostalgia can have a, a pull, and it's not necessarily that politicians are voting, uh, you know, promising voters that we will go back to the 1950s and it will be like it was then. But it's almost like they're trying to do this back-to-the-future routine where they are appealing on a sense of nostalgia to sell a particular political vision for what the future might look like, whether or not that vision is necessarily very realistic. Exactly. And I mean, nostalgia is an incredibly powerful emotion because it's natural to all of us. We all experience it. And I think what I've tried to draw a distinction of in that report is between this more benign, common form of nostalgia that we all share, which is that sort of rose-tinted glasses through which we look back at our past, where we just remember all those sunny moments and we've sort of skimmed across all the all the challenges and perhaps not having central heating and all, and all of our other modern conveniences. Um, and a more nefarious type of nostalgia, which is seeping into our political cultures, which is a restorative form of nostalgia. And this is about saying... We need to reinstate those structures and conditions and power dynamics and relationships and statuses of the past. And where this becomes problematic is it's often at a cost to others. This is where nostalgia can be very exclusionary. If you are a minority background woman living in a Western country, for example, the idea of reinstating the conditions of the past is not necessarily going to come in your favor. It may come in the favor of a middle-class white male, for example. So you start to get a sense of kind of social competition and a perceived level of threat as well on, on, on the side of those who think they may lose out from nostalgia that can also be activated. And I think something to remember about all the forces that are taking place in in Europe, and we're seeing this in America as well, is uh, we're starting to see these highly polarized societies. And I think that um, nostalgia is a force which is actually increasing that divide between the two. Well, and yeah, to try to tie together this uh, nostalgia discussion with the immigration chat that we were having in the first half of our, our talk today, I mean, this does really seem to be an issue where either the political class can get it really right or can get it terribly wrong, particularly in the European context. So it seems like 
you know, you can potentially appeal to people's sense of nostalgia in terms of having a greater community in the past, of trying to reverse some of the decline of the social institutions that people miss, uh, and, you know, fit the immigration issue into that by talking about um, how you are going to better integrate uh, immigrants into your economy, into your society, um, you know, issues like uh, expecting immigrants to learn the local language or, you know, participate in the labor market more, that sort of thing. But, I mean, the alternative to that, which you see from a very noisy, but also still, you know, we need to understand very small minority in Europe, is a much blunter form of nostalgia that just wants to go back to a much more homogenous society that existed before. And I I do, you know, at least as a journalist, instead of a, an opinion researcher, I would think that there's a real danger that if politicians can't come up with that first kind of vision, you increasingly give the stage to people who are pushing the second kind. Absolutely. And I think this is where the points around immigration and the points around nostalgia start to converge, is around change, the issue of change, and how politicians not just manage that from a policy perspective, but also in terms of the language that they use and how they communicate with their citizens. Ultimately, my conclusion from all of this is really that people just want to know what will be immovable in the face of change. And I think those things that they want to be the anchors of their society and their nation are those values, those traditions. And I think we have made liberalism in, in our advanced Western democracies, liberalism has become incredibly neutralized. It's become something that accepts all into it, but never has a sense of self. And I think politicians need to really be on the front foot, as you say, in reaffirming our liberal values, our liberal traditions, our liberal institutions, and defending them. And that's not about creating a sense of um, a perceived external threat, although that can be a rather um, simplistic way of uniting a population, as we saw, for example, after 9-11. Um, it may be more about the threats within, and they need to defend our institutions and values and traditions, um, not just in the face of an amorphous external force, but also the very worst of what we could become as a society. They need to bring us to our very best selves. Well, we could just go on about this all afternoon, but unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it off there. Uh, but I would like to thank our guest, Sophia Gaston, for joining the podcast today. Everyone, go read her op-ed on the journal's website if you were still away on vacation when it appeared last week. The title is Europe's Leaders Need a New Way of Talking About Immigration. And you can also find more of her work at the Center for Social and Political Risk at the Henry Jackson Society, which she has just been getting started. Um, so we will uh, be sure to uh, continue these discussions in the, the future. And meanwhile, please do subscribe to Foreign Edition wherever you get your audio content. I am Joseph Sternberg, and thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.